Happy indeed will your life be when you really understand walking in love. Two, but I do not forget that I am writing to some who are not ignorant of the charity of Scripture and who long to feel more of it every year. I will give you two simple words of exhortation. They are these. Practice and teach the grace of charity. Practice charity diligently. It is one of those graces above all which grow by constant exercise. Strive more and more to carry it into every little detail of daily life. Watch over your own tongue and temper throughout every hour of the day, and especially in your dealings with servants, children, and near relatives. Remember the character of the excellent woman. In her tongue is the law of kindness. Proverbs 31.26 Remember the words of St. Paul. Let all your things be done with charity. 1 Corinthians 16.14 Charity should be seen in little things as well as in great ones. Remember not least the words of St. Peter. Have fervent charity among yourselves. Not a charity which just keeps a light, but a burning, shining fire which all around can see. First Peter 4, 8 It may cause pains and trouble to keep these things in mind. There may be little encouragement from the example of others, but persevere. Charity, like this, brings its own reward. Finally, teach charity to others. Press it continually on servants, if you have any. Tell them the great duty of kindness, helpfulness, and considerateness one for another. Press it above all on children, if you have any. Remind them constantly that kindness, good nature, and good temper are among the first evidences which Christ requires in children. If they cannot know much or explain doctrines, they can understand love. A child's religion is worth very little if it only consists in repeating texts and hymns. Useful as they are, they are often learned without thought, remembered without feeling, said over without consideration of their meaning and forgotten when childhood is gone. By all means, let children be taught texts and hymns but let not such teaching be made everything in their religion. Teach them to keep their tempers, to be kind one to another, to be unselfish, good-natured, obliging, patient, gentle, forgiving. Tell them never to forget to their dying day if they live as long as Methuselah, that without charity the Holy Ghost says we are nothing. Tell them, above all things, to put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Colossians 3, verse 14. Chapter 8. Zeal. It is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing. Galatians 4, verse 18. Zeal is a subject, like many others in religion, most sadly misunderstood. Many would be ashamed to be thought zealous Christians, 
Many are ready to say of zealous people what Festus said of Paul. They are beside themselves. They are mad. Acts 26.24 But zeal is a subject which no reader of the Bible has any right to pass over. If we make the Bible our rule of faith and practice, we cannot turn away from it. We must look it in the face. What says the Apostle Paul to Titus? Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Titus 2, verse 14. What says the Lord Jesus to the Laodicean church? Be zealous and repent. Revelation 3, verse 19. My object in this paper is to plead the cause of zeal in religion. I believe we ought not to be afraid of it, but rather to love and admire it. I believe it to be a mighty blessing to the world and the origin of countless benefits to mankind. I want to strike a blow at the lazy, easy, sleepy Christianity of these latter days, which can see no beauty in zeal and only uses the word zealous as a word of reproach. I want to remind Christians that zealous was a name given to one of our Lord Jesus Christ's apostles and to persuade them to be zealous men. I ask every reader of this paper to give me his attention while I tell him something about zeal. Listen to me for your own sake for the sake of the world, for the sake of the Church of Christ. Listen to me, and by God's help I will show you that to be zealous is to be wise. 1. Let me show in the first place what is zeal in religion. 2. Let me show in the second place when a man can be called rightly zealous in religion. 3. Let me show in the third place why it is a good thing for a man to be zealous in religion. One, first of all, I propose to consider this question, what is zeal in religion? Zeal in religion is a burning desire to please God, to do His will, and to advance His glory in the world in every possible way. It is a desire which no man feels by nature, which the Spirit puts in the heart of every believer when he is converted, but which some believers feel so much more strongly than others that they alone deserve to be called zealous men. This desire is so strong when it really reigns in a man that it impels him to make any sacrifice, to go through any trouble to deny himself to any amount, to suffer, to work, to labor, to toil, to spend himself and be spent, and even to die. If only he can please God and honor Christ. A zealous man in religion is preeminently a man of one thing. It is not enough to say that he is earnest, hearty, uncompromising, thoroughgoing, wholehearted, fervent in spirit. 
He only sees one thing. He cares for one thing. He lives for one thing. He is swallowed up in one thing. And that one thing is to please God. Whether he lives or whether he dies, whether he has health or whether he has sickness, whether he is rich or whether he is poor, whether he pleases man or whether he gives offense, whether he is thought wise or whether he is thought foolish, whether he gets blame or whether he gets praise, whether he gets honor or whether he gets shame. For all this, the zealous man cares nothing at all. He burns for one thing, and that one thing is to please God and to advance God's glory. If he is consumed in the very burning, he cares not for it. He is content. He feels that, like a lamp, he is made to burn, and if consumed in burning, he has but done the work for which God appointed him. Such an one will always find a sphere for his zeal. If he cannot preach and work and give money, he will cry and sigh and pray. Yes, if he is only a pauper on a perpetual bed of sickness, he will make the wheels of sin round him drive heavily by continually interceding against it. If he cannot fight in the valley with Joshua, he will do the work of Moses, Aaron, and her on the hill. Exodus 17, 9-13 If he is cut off from working himself, he will give the Lord no rest till help is raised up from another quarter, and the work is done. This is what I mean when I speak of zeal in religion. We all know the habit of mind that makes men great in this world that makes such men as Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar or Oliver Cromwell or Peter the Great or Charles the Twelfth or Marlborough or Napoleon or Pitt. We know that with all their faults they were all men of one thing. They threw themselves into one grand pursuit. They cared for nothing else. They put everything else aside. They counted everything else as second-rate and of subordinate importance compared to the one thing that they put before their eyes every day they lived. I say that the same habit of mind applied to the service of the Lord Jesus Christ becomes religious zeal. We know the habit of mind that makes men great in the sciences of this world, that makes such men as Archimedes, or Sir Isaac Newton, or Galileo, or Ferguson, the astronomer, or James Watt. All these men were of one thing. They brought the powers of their minds into one single focus. They cared for nothing else besides. And this was the secret of their success. I say that the same habit consecrated to the service of God becomes religious zeal. We know the habit of mind that makes men rich, that makes men amass mighty fortunes and leave millions behind them. What kind of people were the bankers and merchants and tradesmen who have left a name behind them as men 
who acquired immense wealth and became rich from being poor. They were all men that threw themselves entirely into their business and neglected everything else for the sake of that business. They gave their first attention, their first thoughts, the best of their time and the best part of their mind to pushing forward the transactions in which they were engaged. They were men of one thing. Their hearts were not divided. They devoted themselves, body, soul, and mind, to their business. They seemed to live for nothing else. I say that if you turn that habit of mind to the service of God and His Christ, it makes religious zeal. Hey, now this habit of mind, this zeal, was the characteristic of all the apostles. See, for example, the apostle Paul. Hear him when he speaks to the Ephesian elders for the last time. None of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry that I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Acts 20, verse 24. Hear him again when he writes to the Philippians, This one thing I do, I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3, 13 and 14. See him from the day of his conversion, giving up his brilliant prospects, forsaking all for Christ's sake, and going forth to preach that very Jesus whom he had once despised. See him going to and fro throughout the world from that time, through persecution, through oppression, through opposition, through prisons, through bonds, through afflictions, through things next to death itself, up to the very day when he sealed his faith with his blood and died at Rome a martyr for that gospel which he had so long proclaimed. This was true religious zeal. This again was the characteristic of the early Christians. They were men everywhere spoken against. Acts 28.22 They were driven to worship God in dens and caves of the earth. They often lost everything in the world for their religion's sake. They generally gained nothing but the cross, persecution, shame and reproach but they seldom, very seldom went back. If they could not dispute, at least they could suffer. If they could not convince their adversaries by argument, at any rate they could die and prove that they themselves were in earnest. Look at Ignatius, cheerfully traveling to the place where he was to be devoured by lions and saying as he went, now do I begin to be a disciple of my Master Christ. Hear old Polycarp before the Roman governor, saying boldly, when called upon to deny Christ, Fourscore and six years have I served Christ, neither hath he ever offended me in anything, and how then can I revile my King? This was true zeal. See, this again was the characteristic of Martin Luther. He boldly defied the 
most powerful hierarchy that the world has ever seen. He unveiled its corruptions with an unflinching hand. He preached the long-neglected truth of justification by faith in spite of anathemas and excommunications, fast and thickly poured upon him. See him going to the diet at Worms and pleading his cause before the emperor and the legate and a host of the children of this world. Hear him saying when men were dissuading him from going and reminding him of the fate of John Huss, though there were a devil under every tile on the roofs of Worms, in the name of the Lord I shall go forward. This was to zeal. This again was the characteristic of our own English reformers. You have it in our first reformer, Whitcliffe, when he rose up on his sickbed and said to the friars who wanted him to retract all he had said against the Pope, I shall not die but live to declare the villainies of the friars. You have it in Cranmer dying at the stake rather than deny Christ's gospel, holding forth that hand to be first burned, which in a moment of weakness had signed a recantation and saying, as he held it in the flames, this unworthy hand. You have it in old Father Latimer, standing boldly on his faggot at the age of seventy years and saying to Ridley, Courage, Brother Ridley, we shall light such a candle this day as by God's grace shall never be put out. This was zeal. E. This again has been the characteristic of all the great missionaries. You see it in Dr. Judson, in Carey, in Morrison, in Schwartz, in Williams, in Brainerd, in Elliot. You see it in none more brightly than in Henry Martin. He was a man who had reached the highest academical honors that Cambridge could bestow. Whatever profession he chose to follow, he had the most dazzling prospects of success. He turned his back upon it all. He chose to preach the gospel to poor benighted heathen. He went forth to an early grave in a foreign land. He said, when he got there and saw the condition of the people, I could bear to be torn in pieces if I could but hear the sobs of penitence, if I could but see the eyes of faith directed to the Redeemer. This was the F. But let us look away from all earthly examples and remember that zeal was preeminently the characteristic of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ Himself. Of Him it was written hundreds of years before He came upon earth that He was clad with zeal as with a cloak and the zeal of thine house hath even eaten me. And His own words were, My meat is to do my Father's will and to finish His work. Psalm 69.9, Isaiah 59.17, John 4, verse 34. Where shall we begin if we try to give examples of His zeal? Where should we end if we once began? Trace all the narratives of His life in the four Gospels, Read all the history of what he was from the beginning of his ministry to the end. 
Surely, if there ever was one who was all zeal, it was our great example, our head, our high priest, the great shepherd of our profession, the Lord Jesus Christ. If these things are so, we should not only beware of running down zeal, but we should also beware of allowing zeal to be run down in our presence. It may be badly directed and then it becomes a curse, but it may be turned to the highest and best ends and then it is a mighty blessing. Like fire, it is one of the best of servants, but like fire also, if not well directed, it may be the worst of masters. Listen not to those people who talk of zeal as weakness and enthusiasm. Listen not to those who see no beauty in missions, who laugh at all attempts at the conversion of souls, who call societies for sending the gospel to the world useless, and who look upon city missions and district visiting and ragged schools and open-air preaching as nothing but foolishness and fanaticism. Beware, lest in joining a cry of that kind you condemn the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Beware, lest you speak against him who has left us an example that we should follow his steps. First Peter 2.21 Alas, I fear there are many professing Christians who, if they had lived in the days when our Lord and His apostles walked upon earth, would have called Him and all His followers enthusiasts and fanatics. There are many, I fear, who have more in common with Annas and Caiaphas, with Pilate and Herod, with Festus and Agrippa, with Felix and Gallio, than with St. Paul and the Lord Jesus Christ. Two, I pass on now to the second thing I propose to speak of. When is a man truly zealous in religion? There never was a grace of which Satan has not made a counterfeit. There never was a good coin issued from the men, but forgers at once have coined something very like it. It was one of Nero's cruel practices, first to sew up Christians in the skins of wild beasts, and then bait them with dogs. It is one of Satan's devices to place distorted copies of the believer's graces before the eyes of men, and so to bring the two graces into contempt. No grace has suffered so much in this way as zeal. Of none, perhaps, are there so many shams and counterfeits abroad. We must therefore clear the ground of all rubbish on this question. We must find out when zeal and religion is really good and true and of God. 1. If zeal be true, it will be a zeal according to knowledge. It must not be a blind, ignorant zeal. It must be a calm, reasonable, intelligent principle which can show the warrant of Scripture for every step it takes. The unconverted Jews had zeal. Paul says, I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Romans 10, verse 2. Saul had zeal when he was a persecuting Pharisee. 
He says himself in one of his addresses to the Jews, I was zealous toward God as ye all are this day. Acts 22.3 Manasseh had zeal in the days when he was an idolater. The man who made his own children pass through the fire, who gave up the fruit of his body to Molech to atone for the sin of his soul. That man had zeal. James and John had zeal when they would have called down fire on the Samaritan village. But our Lord rebuked them. Peter had zeal when he drew his sword and cut off the ear of Malchus. But he was quite wrong. Bonner and Gardner had zeal when they burned Latimer and Cranmer. Were they not in earnest? Let us do them justice. They were zealous, though it was for an unscriptural religion. The members of the Inquisition in Spain had zeal when they tortured men and put them to horrible deaths because they would not forsake the gospel. Yes, they marched men and women to the stake in solemn procession and called it an act of faith and believed they were doing God's service. The Hindus, who used to lie down before the car of Jagannath and allow their bodies to be crushed under its wheels, had not they zeal? The Indian widows, who used to burn themselves on the funeral pile of their deceased husbands, the Roman Catholics, who persecuted to death the Vaudois and Albertenses and cast down men and women from rocks and precipices because they were heretics, had not they zeal? The Saracens, the Crusaders, the Jesuits, the Anabaptists of Munster, the followers of Joanna Southcote, had they not all zeal? Yes, yes, I do not deny it. All these had zeal beyond question. They were all zealous. They were all in earnest. But their zeal was not such zeal as God approves. It was not a zeal according to knowledge. Two. Furthermore, if zeal be true, it will be a zeal from true motives. Such is the subtlety of the heart that men will often do right things from wrong motives. Amaziah and Joash, kings of Judah, are striking proofs of this. Just so, a man may have zeal about things that are good and right, but from second-rate motives and not from a desire to please God. And such zeal is worth nothing. It is reprobate silver. It is utterly wanting when placed in the balance of God. Man looks certainly at the action. God looks at the motive. Man only thinks of the quantity of work done. God considers the doer's heart. There is such a thing as zeal from party spirit. It is quite possible for a man to be unwearied in promoting the interests of his own church or denomination and yet to have no grace in his own heart, to be ready to die for the peculiar opinions of his own section of Christians and yet have no real love to Christ. Such was the zeal of the Pharisees. They compassed sea and land to make one proselyte and when he was made, they made him twofold more the child of hell than themselves.
Matthew 23:15. This zeal is not true. There is such a thing as zeal from mere selfishness. There are times when it is men's interest to be zealous in religion. Power and patronage are sometimes given to godly men. The good things of the world are sometimes to be attained by wearing a cloak of religion. And whenever this is the case, there is no lack of false zeal. Such was the zeal of Joab when he served David. Such was the zeal of only too many Englishmen in the days of the Commonwealth when the Puritans were in power. There is such a thing as zeal from the love of praise. Such was the zeal of Jehu when he was putting down the worship of Baal. Remember how he met Jonadab, the son of Rechab, and said, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. Second Kings 10.16 Such is the zeal that Bunyan refers to in Pilgrim's Progress when he speaks of some who went for praise to Mount Zion. Some people feed on the praise of their fellow creatures. They would rather have it from Christians than have none at all. It is a sad and humbling proof of man's corruption that there is no degree of self-denial and self-sacrifice to which men may not go from false motives. It does not follow that a man's religion is true because he gives his body to be burned or because he gives his goods to feed the poor. The Apostle Paul tells us that a man may do this and yet not have true charity. 1 Corinthians 13, 1, and so forth. It does not follow because men go into a wilderness and become hermits that therefore they know what true self-denial is. It does not follow because people immure themselves in monasteries and nunneries or become sisters of charity and sisters of mercy that therefore they know what true crucifixion of the flesh and self-sacrifice is in the sight of God. All these things people may do on wrong principles. They may do them from wrong motives, to satisfy a secret pride and love of notoriety, but not from true motive of zeal for the glory of God. All such zeal, let us understand, is false. It is of earth and not of heaven. 3. Furthermore, If zeal be true, it will be a zeal about things according to God's mind and sanctioned by plain examples in God's word. Take for one instance that highest and best kind of zeal. I mean zeal for our own growth in personal holiness. Such zeal will make a man feel incessantly that sin is the mightiest of all evils and conformity to Christ the greatest of all blessings. It will make him feel that there is nothing which ought not to be done in order to keep up a close walk with God. It will make him willing to cut off the right hand or pluck out the right eye or make any sacrifice if only he can attain a closer communion with Jesus. Is not this just what you see in the Apostle Paul? He says, I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, 
I myself should be a castaway. I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark. 1 Corinthians 9.27 Philippians 3.13 and 14 Take for another instance zeal for the salvation of souls. Such zeal will make a man burn with desire to enlighten the darkness which covers the souls of multitudes and to bring every man, woman, and child he sees to the knowledge of the gospel. Is not this what you see in the Lord Jesus? It is said that he neither gave himself nor his disciples leisure so much as to eat. Mark 6.31 Is not this what you see in the Apostle Paul? He says, I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. 1 Corinthians 9.22 Take for another instance zeal against evil practices. Such zeal will make a man hate everything which God hates, such as drunkenness, slavery, or infanticide, and long to sweep it from the face of the earth. It will make him jealous of God's honor and glory and look on everything which robs him of it as an offense. Is not this what you see in Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, or in Hezekiah and Josiah, when they put down idolatry? Take for another instance zeal for maintaining the doctrines of the gospel. Such zeal will make a man hate unscriptural teaching just as he hates sin. It will make him regard religious error as a pestilence which must be checked, whatever may be the cost. It will make him scrupulously careful about every jot and tittle of the counsel of God, lest by some omission the whole gospel should be spoiled. Is not this what you see in Paul at Antioch? when he withstood Peter to the face and said he was to blame? Galatians 2.11 These are the kind of things about which true zeal is employed. Such zeal, let us understand, is honorable before God. For, furthermore, if zeal be true, it will be a zeal tempered with charity and love. It will not be a bitter zeal, It will not be a fierce enmity against persons. It will not be a zeal ready to take a sword and to smite with carnal weapons. The weapons of true zeal are not carnal, but spiritual. True zeal will hate sin and yet love the sinner. True zeal will hate heresy and yet love the heretic. True zeal will long to break the idol, but deeply pity the idolater. True zeal will abhor every kind of wickedness, but labor to do good even to the vilest of transgressors. True zeal will warn as St. Paul warned the Galatians, and yet feel tenderly as a nurse or a mother over erring children. It will expose false teachers as Jesus did the scribes and Pharisees, and yet weep tenderly, as Jesus did over Jerusalem when he came near to it for the last time. 
true zeal, will be decided as a surgeon dealing with a diseased limb, but true zeal will be gentle as one that is dressing the wounds of a brother. True zeal will speak truth boldly like Athanasius against the world and not care who is offended, but true zeal will endeavor in all its speaking to speak the truth in love. 5. Furthermore, if zeal be true, it will be joined to a deep humility. A truly zealous man will be the last to discover the greatness of his own attainments. All that he is and does will come so immensely short of his own desires that he will be filled with a sense of his own unprofitableness and amazed to think that God should work by him at all. Like Moses, when he came down from the mount, he will not know that his face shines like the righteous in the 25th chapter of St. Matthew. He will not be aware of his own good works. Dr. Buchanan is one whose praise is in all the churches. He was one of the first to take up the cause of the perishing heathen. He literally spent himself, body and mind, in laboring to arouse sleeping Christians to see the importance of missions. Yet, he says in one of his letters, I do not know that I ever had what Christians call zeal. Whitfield was one of the most zealous preachers of the gospel the world has ever seen. Fervent in spirit, instant in season and out of season, he was a burning and shining light and turned thousands to God. Yet he says after preaching for thirty years, Lord, help me to begin to begin. McShane was one of the greatest blessings that God ever gave to the Church of Scotland. He was a minister insatiably desirous of the salvation of souls. Few men ever did so much good as he did though he died at the age of twenty-nine. Yet he says in one of his letters, None but God knows what an abyss of corruption is in my heart. It is perfectly wonderful that ever God could bless such a ministry. We may be very sure where there is self-conceit, there is little true zeal. I ask the readers of this paper particularly to remember the description of true zeal which I have just given, zeal according to knowledge, zeal from true motives, zeal warranted by scriptural examples, zeal tempered with charity, zeal accompanied by deep humility. This is true, genuine zeal. This is the kind of zeal which God approves. Of such zeal, you and I never need fear having too much. I ask you to remember the description because of the times in which you live. Beware of supposing that sincerity alone can ever make up true zeal. That earnestness, however ignorant, makes a man a really zealous Christian in the sight of God. There is a generation in these days which makes an idol of what it is pleased to call earnestness, in quotes, in religion. These men will allow no fault to be found with an earnest man. 
whatever his theological opinions may be, if he be but an earnest man, that is enough for these people, and we are to ask no more. They tell you we have nothing to do with minute points of doctrine and with questions of words and names about which Christians are not agreed. Is the man an earnest man? If he is, we ought to be satisfied. Earnestness, in their eyes, covers over a multitude of sins. I warn you solemnly to beware of this specious doctrine. In the name of the gospel and in the name of the Bible, I enter my protest against the theory that mere earnestness can make a man a truly zealous and pious man in the sight of God. These idolaters of earnestness would make out that God has given us no standard of truth and error, or that the true standard, the Bible, is so obscure that no man can find out what truth is by simply going to it. They pour contempt upon the Word, the written Word, and therefore they must be wrong. These idolaters of earnestness would make us condemn every witness for the truth and every opponent of false teaching from the time of the Lord Jesus down to this day. The scribes and Pharisees were in earnest, and yet our Lord opposed them. And shall we dare even to hint a suspicion that they ought to have been left alone? Queen Mary and Bonner and Gardner were in earnest in restoring popery and trying to put down Protestantism, and yet Ridgely and Latimer opposed them to the death. And shall we dare to say that as both parties were in earnest, both were in the right? Devil worshippers and idolaters at this day are in earnest, and yet our missionaries labor to expose their errors. And shall we dare to say that earnestness would take them to heaven, and that missionaries to heathen and Roman Catholics had better stay at home? Are we really going to admit that the Bible does not show us what is truth? Are we really going to put a mere vague thing called earnestness in the place of Christ and to maintain that no earnest man can be wrong? God forbid that we should give place to such doctrine. I shrink with horror from such theology. I warn men solemnly to beware of being carried away by it for it is common and most seductive in this day. Beware of it, for it is only a new form of an old error. That old error which says that a man can't be wrong whose life is in the right. Admire zeal, seek after zeal, encourage zeal, but see that your own zeal be true. See that the zeal which you admire in others is a zeal according to knowledge, a zeal from right motives, a zeal that can bring chapter and verse out of the Bible for its foundation. Any zeal but this is but a false fire. It is not lighted by the Holy Ghost. 3. I pass on now to the third thing I propose to speak of. Let me show why it is good for a man to be zealous. It is certain that God never gave man a commandment which it was not man's interest as well as his duty to obey. 
He never said a grace before His believing people, which His people will not find it their highest happiness to follow after. This is true of all the graces of the Christian character. Perhaps it is preeminently true in the case of zeal. A zeal is good for a Christian's own soul. We all know that exercise is good for the health and that regular employment of our muscles and limbs promotes our bodily comfort and increases our bodily vigor. Now that which exercise does for our bodies, zeal will do for our souls. It will help mightily to promote inward feelings of joy, peace, comfort and happiness. None have so much enjoyment of Christ as those who are ever zealous for His glory, jealous over their own walk, tender over their own consciences, full of anxiety about the souls of others, and ever watching, working, laboring, striving, and toiling to extend the knowledge of Jesus Christ upon earth. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying His word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said, 
that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.